listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? God, I say God. How do you like that? This is Paris. This is Chuck T. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield.
Good morning, and good morning to you, Eric. Hey, Antonio. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So my guest is Eric Nieto, and um, he's a world-famous podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> His podcast is uh, The Fourth Estate, and even though you've only just put out your second podcast, you're already world-famous. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know. <laughs> so... Um, you're also graduating. Yeah, this is my last residency, yeah. mini residency, I guess. Right. Your graduation is on Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, so it's my presentation. It's the last. Yeah, it's all packed into one day. So, in advance, congratulations. Thank you. What was your study about here at Goddard College? Um, I think Karen Campbell said it best. She's an advisor here. Uh, American political ideology and ideological media, which is like. Political science and political media studies, I guess, would be. What does that mean? So I started here kind of tracing back what I saw as the dominant political ideologies in this country, kind of tracing them back to the post-World War II era, all the way through now, essentially. And uh, just kind of you know tracing the ideological movements, movement conservatism, neoliberalism, some of the lefty movements and the Democratic Party as it's kind of moved back and forth between allying itself with some of the civil rights and labor causes and then back over to the corporate side. And then from there, I just started trying to make this podcast. It took a, it took a while to actually get two episodes out, but that's because there was a lot of work around it, a lot of media analysis that I didn't think I was going to have to do or that I didn't know I was going to have to do after Donald Trump was elected. And that kind of changed the landscape a lot. Threw a monkey wrench into everything. It did, and and everyone's understanding changed, or it should have, after his election. Sounds like we've got a lot to talk about. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So you were studying this progression that was occurring from World War II up until the present, and then, like, a year and a half ago, or almost two years ago, all of a sudden, we had a radical kind of anomalous shift or seemingly anomalous shift in our political landscape, as you just said. So would it be worth talking about what you've learned about our recent political history leading up to the election of Donald Trump before we get to talking about what's changed and or what's appeared to have changed? Yeah, sure. So just kind of going over what I've learned over the course of the past two years was that maybe this wasn't actually such an anomaly, right? That maybe we've been on this path for a while. The way I laid it out in my work was, and and we'll probably have to unpack it a little bit, but is is that the election of Donald Trump represents the intersection of neoliberal capitalism's excess and neo-fascist nativism and you know, we've been on both those roads for a while now. Both parties, you know, are culpable on the neoliberal excess part. And I guess both parties have been to blame on the neo-fascist nativism part, too. The Democrats more recently than the Republicans. The Republicans have been at it for a long time. But I think you really saw with Bill Clinton and the Get Tough movement with the Democratic Southern governors and all of the so-called new Democrats, you really saw the Democrats shift tactics to essentially prove that they could be not as tough, but tougher on racial minorities than the Republicans were. 
that whole thing about um, eviscerating welfare. But you said that the Democrats were culpable, but more recently there's this backlash, this, you called it a neo-fascist thing. It's been there under the surface that even the Republican Party, the people in the Republican Party wouldn't overtly state it. They wouldn't they wouldn't admit that that's really what was going on. Um, it was part of the strategy. It was called the Southern Strategy. Um, and it was laid out really bluntly by Lee Atwater, who was a top Reagan aide, in an interview he gave to a political scientist that was uncovered by, I, I think it was E.J. Dion from the Washington Post. It appeared in The Nation, uh, on, the, on the Nation website. You can find it there, Lee Atwater talking about the Southern Strategy, where he lays it out in the 19... 50s, you could say N-word, N-word, N-word. He said the word, but, you know, you could say that word back then. In the 60s, that starts to hurt you, so you start talking about things like forced busing. 70s, you move so beyond that into economic issues that you're talking about taxes, and by then the language is so coded that no one realizes that you're um, pursuing policy that, the way he put it, you know, uh, I think he said, the blacks end up getting hurt, which was the goal. What was the strategy and what were they trying to accomplish so in the, a nutshell? The strategy was to code essentially racist policy, shift it from outright opposition to things like integration, school integration, voting rights, stuff like that, kind of take the focus off that, focus more on economic issues and dog whistles, essentially, that you know you could wink-wink at you know, your racist white voter, especially in the South, and say, you know, we're, we're doing this, we're, we're, we're pursuing this tax policy, we are pursuing cuts to certain housing programs. You know, and, uh, Ronald Reagan really took an axe to the housing subsidies for minority communities in California when he was governor there. Lots of policies that directly hurt the African-American communities specifically and appeased racist white Southerners. So the goal was to instill a sense of superiority among white voters, at least that, the, you know, at least they were just, just a little better off, you know, and then they could really go after the African-American community economically in a way that they couldn't really overtly do anymore in, a, in an overtly racist way. So they were essentially institutionalizing racism without using the N-word. Yes. And, and it That's all became about economics, which is the goal. Right. But... Then, in 2016, things changed. Now, there's, there's some things that, that helped provoke it, I would say, because I was having conversations with people leading up to the election where people who, who previously considered themselves to be Democrats, they voted for Obama, but they were reacting. There was a kind of blowback to all of this identity politics and mm. political correctness that becoming so um, so heightened and they were reacting to that and in a way they were like a canary in the coal mine of of the sentiment of people on the right like the southern democrats or or people who who still hadn't gotten over supposed equality that was um, 
promulgated by the civil rights movement that didn't want to move into the future or the present world. You know, they, they wanted to go back. It's always been a really effective wedge issue, specifically for racist politicians. Stoking racial animus is always a really good way to avoid talking about class issues. And I think the Republican Party figured that out first. And they, um, they, I mean, it's still their strategy. And I think Bill Clinton and the New Democrats really made a nod to that. Yeah, Catered to that, yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like I don't think in those ways. So I wishfully thinking thought we're making progress. And I think most of us on the liberal side of the spectrum thought that we were making real progress. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that progress, especially that kind of progress, ebbs and flows, unfortunately. Uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who is a uh, associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton, wrote this great book called From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And in it, she talks a lot about the labor strikes and movements of the late 1960s and 1970s, where specifically the Postal Workers Union scored a lot of big wins against the Nixon administration, got raises, better hours, stuff like that. And that was a predominantly African-American-led labor movement. And what you started to see was kind of these coalitions between white labor movements and labor movements predominantly headed by people of color. And it was an uncomfortable alliance a lot of the time. That racism didn't just go away. But what you saw was polling start to reflect a shifting paradigm, essentially where, you know, people were polled on, are African Americans being treated unfairly generally in this country? You had a majority of whites for the first time saying yes. Should interracial marriage be legal for the first time? A majority of whites saying yes. Would you like to see a black president one day, or do you think there's going to be a black president one day? The majority of whites saying yes, or if they're ready for one. And the smartest thing the Republican Party ever did was to fracture that movement, was to pit those movements against each other. And race was the cudgel they used to do it. Yeah, because they're so invested in their ideology, in their vision of the world that they want. I mean, they are, the first and foremost, the vanguard for the ruling class, for the rich. Right. And that kind of... The old status quo. And that kind of intersectional or interracial class solidarity is very, very dangerous to that. Mm -hmm. I tend to think in terms of what is it that they're so afraid of? What are they really afraid of? Is that something that you that you think about? Yeah, I, I think depending on who you're talking to, it's two different things. If you're talking to the uh, hedge fund manager on Wall Street, they're just afraid of not being able to make unfathomable amounts of money. Right. Um, if you talk to, say, Jeff Sessions, he's probably a little more afraid of being in a vulnerable position in a society that, maybe doesn't privilege people who look like him anymore. Right. Population projections, I think, are are showing that within the next mm, 10 or 20 years that whites are going to be the minority in this country. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, you know, I think we're definitely already there in Los Angeles, where I'm from. Um, and I think we're there in California generally. 
Yeah, then it's happened a few other places. Hawaii is the most diverse state in the union. And I think New York is getting close. So again, the question is, what are they really afraid of? I mean, there's a model that that has occurred down in South Africa Hmm. where the political landscape completely shifted. Yeah. And all things considered, it happened peacefully. Yeah. You're not you you wouldn't know it if you were listening to Fox News right now, right? <laughs> but uh, but you know, and, and but again, that's that's part of the Republican strategy of how, right, I mean, how you frame things. I mean, they are masters of framing the discussion, and the problem is that people on the liberal side, Democrats, you could say, are masters of being manipulated. I mean, they're just it, to me, it just seems like they're so easy to fool or to trick into following these these completely insane narratives. Well, it's been the democratic strategy since the 90s to not seem overtly ideological. Right. And that's just led to a party in complete disarray. With um, no focus, no mission, no nothing, really. Nothing. Empty. I mean no, and 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 no values. And and you know, as much as they say they want unity, I mean they they sow disunity by bringing in you know, and they don't have their seats anymore. But you know, I don't know if you remember Senators uh, Mary Landrieu, or Blanche Lincoln, or Ben Nelson. Arkansas, Louisiana, and Nebraska, I think, were the states that they were from. And you know, they were very unreliable Democrats in the Senate, but they were Democrats, and that's all that really mattered to the Democratic Party. But they were holdouts on the Affordable Care Act, which, I mean, even after it lost the public option, which was really difficult for me to watch at the time. But yeah, I mean, the Democrats are afraid of seeming ideological where the Republicans embrace it. That's what they do, right? And the Democrats do it to an extent with with radical free market ideology, right? Or they, they kind of cow to it. Republicans really push it. And Republicans really run on, you know, Christian fundamentalism or and gun culture and stuff like that. You know, they're not afraid. They're not shying away from the issues that make them seem extreme. It seems to me that the Democrats are like the child of the abusive Republican <laughs> parent that just wants to be accepted. I think they have a little more agency than that at this point, except that they're working toward a um, a more corporate... Well, they feed off the corporate thing. I mean, right, right. If they were to be honest, they would say, oh yeah, we suck at that, you know, teat as well mm-hmm. as as the Republicans. We, we want our, our seat at that table. Oh, more so in a lot of ways, too. I mean... You know, which I think is a big part of the problem that they have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it did not help that it came out that Hillary Clinton was giving secret speeches to Goldman Sachs and other financial firms, you know, telling them, you know, the best people to monitor these industries are the people who run them and going to campaign rallies in Ohio and saying, we need more regulation and financial oversight. Right. It just... Doublespeak. Yeah. I mean, this time people saw through it. Right. And... Unfortunately, it led them to someone who was just lying about what they were going to do and gave us Donald Trump. Right. But here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been studying this. Now, for me, I find this whole political thing to be exasperating (laughs) and frustrating and painful to look at and just to see. It's, It's like that old saying that doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Right. How do you keep pursuing this and keep, you know, studying this and 
and working in this arena. I mean, what keeps you going and what is it that you hope to achieve by the work that you're doing? And what are you aspiring to? Um, so earlier you mentioned framing. And for me, that's the exasperating part is that we have a largely consolidated corporate media structure in this country that does not offer a diversity of opinions. They pretend to, but they don't. And they have a very narrow, centrist perspective. Yeah, or I don't even know if I'd call it centrist. Well, I'm not, I, I think the that, center yeah. has moved steadily to the right yeah. over the last few decades. Right, I mean, especially among corporate media, I mean, their interests, or the interests of whoever owns them at whatever time for NBC or MSNBC, I think right now it's Comcast, before that it was GE, Fox News and News Corp, I think, was it Viacom and CNN? I, I forget. No, it's ABC. Disney owns ABC and CNN. So the interests of those parent companies inevitably get reflected. And the frustrating thing for me is the way things are framed with a neoliberal lexicon and, and the rules of neoliberalism, right? If a politician is proposing, and it, it, you hear it at every presidential debate almost, if a politician is proposing a tax hike on millionaires, then the question is inevitably framed, okay, so you're going to do that. Where do the spending cuts come from? Where are you going to cut the social safety net? They're always paired one-to-one, -one, always. And they always expect... Well, you two are going to have to reach some kind of grand bargain. And no one ever just refutes that premise outright. But it is just the common wisdom that the major news organizations just work within. And, you know, that's one example, but it, it happens with so many other things that it, it has really stunted our collective political imagination. So why is that happening? I think it's happening for a few reasons. I think that it's, I think the framing is intentional. The framing is intentional, but mm -hmm. why does the the quote-unquote other side go along with it. I say quote-unquote because they they seem to be connected at the hip. Uh, what do you mean by the other side? The Democrats. Oh. oh, yeah. I mean, as far as keeping things relatively the same, I, I, I don't think there's much daylight. When you I, say daylight. Between the Republicans and the Democrats. Of, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. About the Republicans, or between the Republicans and the Democrats about wanting to change the discourse. I think Democrats, for all their talk about wanting, or all their feigned concern about income inequality, really don't do very much to address the issue. And that's why no one really takes them seriously on it. And I think that's why they lose. Right. And for the Republicans... It's more, uh, I think it's, it's, I think it's almost more of a religion to them, you know, the, yeah. the free hand of the market. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could, again, you could say that about a lot of Democrats too. The ironic thing is, I'm sure you remember that, it seems like it was just a few years ago. Remember when, when everyone was talking about like the death knell of the Republican Party? Oh, right after Obama was elected? Well, not because of Obama being elected, but it might have been what was leading up to it that the Republican Party and their agenda was being exposed as being so against the interests of the people and how completely and utterly out of touch the Republican Party was and how elitist they were and that everybody in the media were talking about how and even Republicans were talking about how they were so out of touch. And at one point it got to the point where they were actually talking about the actual death of the Republican Party. And then 
everything shifted, but nobody remembered what it shifted from. It's like we have the shortest attention span in memory politically in this country. You know, that's been one of my big frustrations, especially especially looking back at the Bush administration. Just remembering how spectacularly bad of a president he was and the just extreme cost of life both you know american troops and 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 citizens abroad and, and soldiers abroad and the financial collapse you know and and he you know he had scandal after scandal and with real big devastating human consequence and all it took for us to forget was donald trump and that's very depressing to me i think the reason it did again was because you know barack obama had the same aversion to seeming ideological right. that the Democratic Party in a larger sense suffers from. So when he came in with this extraordinary mandate, you know, a real clear, decisive electoral victory, super majorities, didn't use them the way right. I think people were it's, expecting it's him to use them. apologizing for being there. Almost, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because Mitt Romney four years later would accuse him of conducting an apology tour. But, you know, I think that he... Um, and adopting I, Republican strategies. If, uh, or, or, or neoliberal strategies, right? Uh, free right. market. Ne- very much like yeah. Clinton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very much like Clinton. He, I mean, he was bringing in all, so many of the same Clinton people to yeah. kind of right. clean up this mess that had really right. started to unfold back in the 90s. You know, and and even in the 80s, but really kind of and bringing in people from the very corporations and, you know, massive banks and to, the banking industry to oversee yeah. the so-called recovery. So we have on the quote unquote left. <laughs> it's <laughs> all framing. It's such it's true. It's so silly. Um, it's just corporatization. It's institutionalizing corporatization in the Democratic Party. On the right, you have this, like, criminal culture. Like, going back to, you know, Nixon, then Reagan. I mean, the joke around Reagan is they were, there were, like, 225 convicted or indicted members of his administration. And Trump... I was going to say, look where we are now. Look where we are now. They just keep doing the same thing over. Both parties do the same thing over and over again. And we wonder why people are like, this is insane. Why should we even vote for this? I mean, it's not just about voting for the lesser of two evils, but the lesser of two really unpalatable evils. So when it boiled down to voting for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, it was like... For many people, that was an unpalatable choice when Bernie Sanders had his his candidacy stolen from him, in a way, I would say. Right. Well, I mean, to that last point, I think that when you have one political candidate essentially in charge of the DNC, it's kind of foolish to just expect it to be the neutral arbiter that it's supposed to be. But, you know, lots of people disagree with me on that. But... uh Oh, I'm sorry. What was your point before that? Well, my question leading up to all this was, how do you keep going studying this field? And (laughs) and what is it that you're aspiring to? Oh, right. Um, So I keep going because I see I'm still optimistic about what, you know, specifically optimistic about what a different kind of 
political media can accomplish. I think you're seeing some interesting examples and some really good examples in news outlets like The Intercept, founded by Jeremy Scahill, who is a fantastic investigative reporter for The Nation. Glenn Greenwald, who worked with Laura Poitras to release the Snowden documents, the Snowden leaks. I think, you know, you have Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! doing very good work. And what these people are doing, and, and, and Naomi Klein with her writing and her book, and she works for The Intercept now, and what these people are doing is they are rejecting the premise that they're expected to work within, right? They're not covering things from a they're corporate not, perspective. They're not going to allow not, themselves to be framed. Right. Or, or, or you know what? Or they'll, they'll come up with their own framing. Right. And, you know, they, just with the understanding that rejecting the one that we have now is really political journalism's only hope for viability or to regain the trust that it's lost. You know, one of the things that I think really explains the Trump presidency is this disconnect between what political media, mainstream political media was telling people they were experiencing versus what they were actually experiencing. You had Rachel Maddow going on MSNBC all the time, and she put up what she called the bikini graph, which showed kind of the big Duncan jobs during the Bush administration and the Obama recovery on the other end. And it's true, it, you know, the, the job growth did turn around under Obama, but no one really asked, what about wages? What kind of jobs are these? Right. And are we actually better off? When in reality, the economy did turn around to an extent, but I think the media really played it up a lot more, you know, whereas, you know, yes, the big banks are being bailed out, the the big stressors on the stock market, the big stressors on what we are told is the entirety of the economy were alleviated. That didn't really happen for your working class person, your average working class person. I mean, for instance, uh, black wealth never recovered from the recession. And after. all those people who lost their homes yeah. in the mortgage crisis, they didn't get their homes back. No, they, they didn't, didn't get their get homes anything back. But all they, the banks, yeah. all the banks, including the banks who were guilty of perpetrating the mortgage fraud industry, they were bailed out. Absorbed each other, just became... And all their CEOs received huge bonuses. Mm -hmm. And that, that whole thing continued. And that was essentially blamed on the Democrats. Yeah, perpetrating that. Thing. I mean, it was it was, and, and, and it, it was it's, true. It's, it's true, it was and true. it's and it's you know hilarious coming from Republicans because they would have done the exact same thing. Absolutely. In fact, that's the ironic thing is that while they were undercutting Obama and bad mouthing him, they must have been just as they must have been during Clinton's time, just lapping it up. I mean, the people who could see through the the artificial framing, right? Yeah, I mean the propaganda. Yeah, I mean, and you know, for for a long time, the people the the people with the biggest platforms were the people who, you know, had a vested interest in keeping that propaganda up. You know, I mean, they saw through it; they know exactly what they were doing. Right. So yeah, I mean, I'm aspiring to, kind of join, the ranks of you know, the Intercept, you know, Democracy Now. Yeah, I mean, I I think that. To get into there's a doing, lot of good work happening right now, and to do your own. And ProPublica, I think, is another one that's doing really good work. You mean to be yeah. doing your own, yeah, deeper uh, investigative journalism? Absolutely. Or, or and 
in journalism and, and commentary that really breaks the... The framing mold, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, right now, I would say the bellwether of the country, just look at NPR. Mm. They're a perfect example because they used to be, they used to represent the liberal side back at their inception. Mm -hmm. And they have steadily, steadily moved to the right. And, you know, they have been buying into the fear about, you know, where's the money? How are we going to keep our thing going? You know? Oh, yeah. I, and, and you hear <laughs> you hear reflected all the time on NPR. I think, you know, just the other day they were talking about job growth. You know, we, we are seeing sustained job growth. Wages going up, you know, and they had economists just kind of marveling it, just like, we don't understand why isn't, you know, this is so unusual, job growth and no wage growth. Well, that's kind of the point. That's kind of where we're, you know, that's that, that was intentional and pretending like it wasn't, pretending like it's some mystery just helps to erode public trust in media, first of all, and just continue to obfuscate the economic situation. But the reason for that is that there's no real investigative journalism going on. Well, there can't be in in a, in those institutions. In those institutions, right. I mean. Well, they would be going against the dictates of their masters. Yes. But supposedly, because I listen to people in that milieu as well, and they say that nobody is telling them what they can or cannot report. But at the same time, they know on an unspoken level, what will fly and what won't, what they should be if they want to continue their career. Because the career has changed. It really isn't about getting to the truth anymore. Right. It, it is, uh, you know... The media has a new it, role it, It's now. secondary to, right. you know, and, and the, the, the main role is to make money. And to maintain the status quo. And making money is, a, you know, making... The status Extreme quo is based is a, upon yeah. this this economic model that we mm -hmm. have, that and that that they that they have to follow too, you know, in order to be relevant in this particular. That despite yeah. the fact that even various economists within the system are talking about how the system doesn't work, and we are just doing the same thing over and over again, and everything keeps falling apart. In fact, everything keeps falling apart worse and worse each time. And yet, the framing of it is that there's nothing else. It's kind of like democracy. It's, it's the worst system in the world, but there's nothing better, so they say. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the... To go back to the framing, they say, well, what else is there? Right. And anything presented, anything presented to them that is just outside of it, is characterized as naive right. or foolish or unrealistic or too expensive or irresponsible. Better the devil or we know. Or fanatic, right. fanatical. Be you know. Better the devil we know than the devil we don't know. That's but everyone's terrified of, of stepping outside the box, which has been gradually being shrunk. Yeah, I mean, it, it became the job of major journalistic institutions to make sure that this the country's narrative? political imaginations remain stunted. And even continuing to stunt them more and more, mm -hmm. it seems. I Maybe. think it's breaking finally. I just, I think that people are ready. Well, they people did are break trying out. to reject. Well, they did yeah. in 2016. They they did in a big way. You mean with the Bernie Sanders candidacy? Well, I'm or talking about Trump. Trump. Mm -hmm. Remember the thing that Michael Moore did, where he went out to Iowa or somewhere in the Midwest, and and he was having these town hall meetings with people, and, and basically his conclusion was that 
it was the let's blow the whole thing up. That was the thing because people were perceiving that the system was broken, that the Democrats were full of it, the Republicans were complete elitists. They would never act in the people's interest, but the Democrats sold them out, you know. Back in the 90s, they remember. Yeah. And what Michael Moore was doing back in 2016 was what journalists should have been doing the entire time, which was talking to people. If journalists had just done what they used to do and go and talk to people in their communities... That's such a great point because... Journalists, they always talk to the quote-unquote experts. And who are the experts? Well, the, the, the networks decide who the, who the experts exactly. are, or the government decides who the experts the, are, or the corporate They're realm. the representatives yeah. of the status quo. Yeah, they are. I mean, they work for the institutions that they are supposed to be commenting on, so they are going to re- represent the interests of that institution. And what you saw with the failure of Hillary Clinton's campaign and kind of the way the media just got it completely wrong... You saw an over-reliance on data-driven information, right? You know, we have specific polling on this community, this one, this one, this one, and aggregating all of that tells us this, right? So you had Huffington Post saying there was a 99.9% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to become the president. Hillary Clinton's campaign believed that. The New York Times had it at 98%. Even Nate Silver, I think, by the end had it at 74%. And then they were all wrong. And... The only thing they needed to do to understand that was to actually talk to people, especially people in the, I guess, what was the blue wall in the Midwest. They would have, you know, the Wisconsin voters probably would have told you, listen, Hillary Clinton has not been here a single time. And we don't trust her. Well, you know, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. I think, you know, about that, I think Hillary Clinton got a real unfair shake for a long time throughout the 90s. I think that specifically the way the Republicans went after her, I think really, you know, it was... it was, it was. Well, she had the was, benefit or the burden of her husband right. and his legacy. Yeah, of course. And it's very, very hard to separate the two. It is, but... For you anybody. Know, but, you know, it, it was hard for her, too, because she was such a key player in the, the Bill Clinton administration. But, yeah, I mean, I think that the Clinton campaign... And, yeah, like I said, the Clinton campaign and the media both got it wrong because of their refusal to actually be on the ground and talk to people. Mm -hmm. So you had people like Michael Moore and Thomas Frank and Anna Marie Cox saying, I think this is going to be closer than anyone thinks. There's a real movement, a mm -hmm. genuine movement in a direction that that nobody's looking at. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I'm just, I, I hope that we can... I hope that political journalism can overcome that blind spot, that over-reliance on... But how can that happen? Because the masses of people in this country keep flocking back to those same media outlets that are not serving them, that are not doing their job. Well, So if, if people keep going back and consuming their problem or whatever you want to call it, then those institutions are going to keep doing the same thing because they're basically getting the feedback from people that what they're dishing out is good enough. I don't think that there's ever been a point where the mainstream media has been less trusted. And yeah, you're right that a lot of them, a lot of people do go back to that. They're still that well, right? Because these alternative outlets that you're talking about, most people aren't even aware of them and they probably wouldn't trust them at their face because they don't have 
yeah, because they don't seem as reputable. But you know, I think we're we're entering a time where you know people are not sure what reputable right. means. So it's very right? easy to well, start it, listening to and to going to like Rush Limbo or. It wasn't say that's dangerous too, right? Like that. It's it's got a dangerous side which, to it, right? There's info wars. Which, if for any thinking person, if you listen to them, you you, you got to be thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right either. But, but what they're swinging, what they're having their backlash from is almost no better. Right. Well, I mean, talk about neo-fascist, you know. I mean, uh, you really are, you're seeing the emergence of some very fringy, scary, racist media outlets that are getting a lot of attention. I don't want to underplay the danger of it, but I think everybody is misinforming themselves and each other. I, I think that's right, but I, I also think that there is a... There's kind of a race to give people a digestible explanation about why things are the way they are right now. And you have these right-wing fringe outlets actually trying to explain neoliberalism and globalization and proposing very dangerous solutions to the problems created by those things. And then you have the other side on the left you know, not proposing those things, but but also trying to identify those same problems for people. So there's real common ground. There is, there. but there's the solutions are so radically different. Yes. But people, the, 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 I think the important point is that people are l- looking for an explanation, and I think it's important that something the neat, left and some a and neat the package that they can follow. Yeah, I think because that's all the attention span they have is is to find something that's clear cut, black and white, either or, no gray areas. No, or 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 you know, have gray area, but like explain the nuance, right? Explain, it has to be explain very it in simple. a very digestible way. Right. It right? has to be a simple gray area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it needs to be it needs to be explained in in an accessible way. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a race to do that right now on in, on both these sides, and you know, the only difference is that the right wing side has very dangerous solutions to those problems. They're actually, they're very good at that. They are. They yeah. specialize in that, whereas the Democrats are mealy-mouthed, spineless. The Democrats aren't going to be the ones to offer the, the you know these explanations to people. I think that, uh, at least as they exist right now, I think the, the leadership they have in place are very invested in keeping things the way they are. Even though they keep losing. Even though they keep losing. I mean, because they, you know, they're, they're operating under the assumption that the pendulum will just swing back. And you know what? It might. Well, but, it does tend to swing back. But, it, but without any real fundamental change more and more disillusioned and i think that'll ultimately make candidates like donald trump or worse if you can imagine one potentially more viable in the future oh yeah it can get worse than donald trump liberals are having a hard time wrapping their heads around that prospect right now but it can happen during the bush administration people we were having a hard time imagining anything worse right how naive Uh, I know. I mean, I don't want to contribute to any of this Bush administration amnesia, but yeah, I mean, as far as corruption goes, like outright corruption, we're seeing something that we haven't seen in a long time. I mean, just just outright campaign finance violation. You know, I think if they're going to get him on anything, they'll probably get him on a obstruction of justice charge. But. And then if if they do manage to impeach him, then you have somebody who's potentially worse. With Mike Pence. Yeah. Right. But, you know, this is why I have a problem with anyone with the narrative that Donald Trump, at least in a policy sense, really deviates that much from your average Republican. I think Mike Pence has a lot of really dangerous ideas, 
but they're not that weird for the Republican Party, you know? Right, exactly. Um, he he will he'll be a perfect fit for them. Yeah, and once Trump is gone and Pence wants someone like Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, then, you know, what's the what's to stop them? Right, and we'll end up with something that starts to look like The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> Potentially. doubt that. I do not doubt that. I mean, no. anyone who knows Mike Pence's history knows that he's... Goal, That's you know? the world that he would aspire to. <laughs> something We're, something close to it, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, his, his stint as governor of Indiana was really... It was a really painful one to look at, especially as a, as a queer person. You know, there was an outbreak of uh, HIV in Indiana while he was governor there. And, and in Indiana, it happens primarily through uh, intravenous drug use. And because of his radical and dangerous beliefs, he would not open clean needle exchanges. You know, he, he took a more punitive tone. And things got a lot worse before he finally gave in and basically did what we know works, which is needle exchanges and counseling and medical care. So why do you think he he did that eventually? I think it just started to look too bad. I think it was I think it was purely optics. Cuz it it seems like those people they they're the ones who are saying like, well, this is God's punishment for this. So why should we try to Oh, there's it? a long tradition of that. Especially the stigma around HIV because it's so specifically associated with the gay community or drug users or drug users right yeah. but you know in in, in the 80s it was yeah. didn't they call it's it gay, gay flu something like that gay disease yeah and you know i think for a lot of people especially the very extreme evangelicals it probably still carries that connotation and i think trump in in some ways he doesn't exactly represent it because he's not a particularly religious person, but he'll co-opt anything. Anything that he thinks will... Help him. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking with Eric Nieto, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Eric is graduating this weekend here at Goddard College. His studies have been in this field of media, and it's quite a minefield, especially <laughs> these days. Um, so where do we go from here? I think we're at a crossroad, you know, we'll either start to change, the old institutions will start to give, or we won't. And or, they won't. or things will get worse, And things will forcing um, us to change. Yeah, I mean, I think that inaction will in inevitably lead to something worse than Donald Trump. People drew a lot of parallels between Trump and Marie Le Pen in France. Marie Le Pen is the daughter of a vicious anti-Semite and racist tried to run for president over and over and over again in France. And then she tried to run, kind of ditched a lot of the baggage that her father had, but was very much the same politician in a lot of ways. But, you know, Naomi Klein says this all the time. She's more of a David Duke kind of figure in France. And she got very close. It would make me very uncomfortable to see David Duke get as close as Marie Le Pen did in France. So, just to give people an idea, you know, I, I think that Donald Trump's bad, David Duke's worse, and I think that if if we if if, if something doesn't happen, if there's no meaningful push from the left, if we somehow drop the ball on this, 
and allow kind of the void that neoliberalism has left behind, the void of information and knowledge and solutions. You know, if, if, if nothing, if we don't fill that void, something else will. And that something else, I think, would be very, very dangerous. And our culture seems to be on the verge of civil war. I've heard that a few times, yeah. I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know either. I don't know if people really feel that strongly that they're ready to go to war with who they perceive to be the other. I, I think I would say that it kind of already feels like we are in a lot of ways, you know? So, I, you know, a lot of stuff has to change if we're going to see that change. And, of course, all of that rests upon the evolutionary state of humanity at this point. And more and more I talk to people, pretty much everyone agrees that humanity is like at an adolescent level in the way they think of things and understand things and relate to things. Yeah, but I think that there's a concerted effort to keep people from understanding. Adolescents tend to be easily provoked easily led, usually through reverse psychology, mm. pushed into or provoked into reactionary um, right, behavior. Right, it's easy to kind of stoke reactionary behavior, um, and it's harder to kind of explain n nuance. Be, right. But I do think that people are generally uh, moved by the truth when they're allowed to hear it. And we've got a caller. Welcome. Hello, O'Neill. Yes. Uh, this is Frank... I don't know if um, your guest there has listened to Democracy Now! this morning. Uh, um, no, I haven't had a chance yet. Okay, Eric, um, it's really great what you're talking about and the idea of the intercept. But um, Jim Risen was on talking about Reality Winter, who has released these documents. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Oh, yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Leaked okay. documents to the intercept, uh, allegedly. Right. Please listen to uh, Democracy Now! And you should get in touch with Jim because he's talking about the idea of getting together all the national investigative journalists as they did back in somewhere in the 70s when some mob guy killed a journalist. They all came together, investigated, and then let out the information. To your point, Frank, about investigative reporters, you're right that that kind of work is more important than ever. It's more important than ever because no one's investing in it. And that's, that's why you're seeing so little of it is that there's just no, there's no, unfortunately, there's no money behind it. Uh, I would invite you and anyone else listening right now to go check out ProPublica online. They do really good work and you can actually donate to them. And I would certainly encourage that. And also the idea of Africa, that South Africa was in the news. If you want to go back to the beginning, you have to remember colonialization. Their money is still in the works. And they have made deals in Kenya. And if you look at Zimbabwe right now, they make deals with these oligarchs for 50 and 100-year contracts after the revolutions. And then these people now, back in the 60s in Kenya, they're under contracts with people from Holland and the other Western powers. 
that enslaved these people to these contracts for so long that as things change, we don't allow the change, and therefore there's uprising and revolution in these countries. Check into Zimbabwe, because the guys that owned the land before, you know, back before, I forget the guy that took over for the last 30, 40 years, but they're back still making contracts now. So you look at another 30, 40 years of them back in the country, that's why Zimbabwe right now is not going to allow the opposition to take hold. It goes back to Western superiority and this the fear and the greed that comes out of the nature of man. So anyhow, I'll hang up and you guys continue. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Thanks Frank. Yep. Bye. So there's an endorsement for the work that you want to do. There are people out there who really do care about real independent journalism. journalism. Yeah. yeah, and it's really important. It's it's it is what's lacking. I mean And yeah. what's so needed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the fourth estate really is supposed to do. That's the job of the media. And the media, it seems like 99% of the media is not doing its job in this country. There's just no incentive to. Yeah. It's owned by the corporate moneyed elite who have no interest in opening the can of worms that they essentially are. Right. I mean, it would, it would take a little too much introspection to <laughs> actually report honestly at this point. Exactly. And they benefit from people not knowing the truth about anything and also exposing the madness that everything they believe in and that their wealth is founded on. And they, they do so much to stoke this politics is a team sport right, narrative, right? Yes. Which, um, that's a great point. It's, and it's so not helpful, but, but it's good for ratings and it, it's good at, at explosive argumentative panels, but it's good for simplistic journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you can even call it that at this point. Right, it's not yeah. journalism, it's, it's, it's a childish it's story. It's, yeah. yeah. It's it's spectacle, and it's not very sexy when we talk to each other and we kind of identify common interests and common goals. But, it takes but, work. But, there's a, but there, there are a lot there. It takes work to have those conversations mm -hmm. and to find common ground and to, to work to negotiate towards the common good, especially when people have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's like admitting that you have a problem and needing to see a therapist, like a couples therapist, to work things out. We have somehow been indoctrinated to thinking that's a sign of personal weakness. And yet, if we go on without doing that, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, we're essentially acting like an insane person. And well, what you identified was the cult of individuality, right? That if we fail, it is completely our fault. If we need help, it is because we are inadequate. It's just not true. Damned if we do and damned if we don't. Mm -hmm. And we've got another caller. Welcome. Hi, Tony. This is Rick. Yeah, getting back a little bit to what you touched on, colonization and decolonization. You know, I think at this point, you know, you were saying we think, well, we've gone beyond that, but it's really decolonizing our own selves individuals and how we've, you know, been brought up under these systems and examining, you know, especially as white males, where that influences how we are in the world and healing some of that stuff, and which goes into what you were just talking about, doing therapy. You know, it's something that 
you know, it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength, because you're willing to go and confront your demons and flaws and all that, so... And doing the hard work... Yes. ...that we need to do in yes. order to grow. And that's the real growth that we should be aspiring to, not economic growth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Another really fascinating book I want to put out there that I've been reading that addresses a lot of this stuff. It's by a Native woman, and it's called Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living, Spirit-Based Change. And um, it's talking about what we need to do as individuals working on our own stuff, because we can't really change the world if, you know, we don't change from within ourselves and how we look at things. I think part of that is actually changing the way we feel about our own individuality. Yes. I think that probably starting toward the 80s, we really kind of got stuck with this. You are a rugged individual. Your success is yours. Your failure is yours. Yes. And there's no such thing as community. That we've been fed, you know, for the last 30, 40 years, and uh, people really bought into it. Yep. And there's a whole other round of that going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. All right, you're welcome. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Bye -bye. Great conversation. Thanks. Yeah, bye. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't even get to your podcast. I, oh, right. I was hoping that we could play some of that, but uh, time flies. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, we could go on for a few more hours easily. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hopefully, yeah, it's, hopefully it'll be my job one day to do that. <laughs> yeah. It almost You're, is. Yeah. It almost is, yeah. right. It's like, this is my... Almost job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sacred institutions. <laughs> and that's that's a great metaphor. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fourth estate should be operated and thought about and funded like it's a sacred institution. Mm -hmm. Because in a sense, it is a sacred institution. It has, a, it has an integral function in our society. And if we're to think of our society and our nation as a sacred entity, something that is formed to serve the people, the common good, we have to approach it that way. But things have changed almost 180 degrees. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, the media lost a lot of, a lot of its um, credibility, you know, over the past. And now Trump is, is co-opting that. He's talking about fake, fake news, news yeah. which is taking it to a kind of absurdist extreme, oh, gosh, but it is based yeah. on the truth. Well, yeah, like, so Trump, as is so often the case, is right for the wrong reason. Yeah. You know, he's right, but he's presenting, but he's taking it in the wrong directions. He's he's doing the wrong thing with it. I mean, he could do... He's assessed something true could, and turned it really, into... If he had honored spin. some of the things that he said he was running for, and he actually did them, he would be serving a real purpose that a lot of people really hope that he would do, but he has not been doing that at all. Right. It's whatever fits his narrative, right? It's his constantly changing narrative. You know, right. it just, it, he'll, he'll take whatever, right. whatever he can, whatever he right. can. So we have another caller. Yeah, just a couple seconds here. Um, it said sacred institutions. It's actually instructions. sacred instructions. Oh, sacred that's instructions. Right. That's okay. right. Oh, yeah, hi. Well, that was an example of me co-opting something. No, no, that was me. That was, I misread my notes. Oh, okay. 
that's how easy it is to, to misconstrue information. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I think you could kind of interchange those words in a way, you know, creating sacred institutions. Right. No, thank you, Rick. <laughs> yeah. I realized okay. that halfway through, and I was just like, oh, okay. well, I guess we're just, we'll go with it. Yeah, I was just returning back to the radio, and I caught that. I said, oh, in case you're, you're trying to get it, it might make it a little harder. Right. So that's sacred instructions for anyone who was foolish enough to listen to me. <laughs> and me. Well, what about what about those who are foolish enough not to listen to you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. Bye. Thank bye you. Bye. So um, let's talk about in the last few minutes your podcast, sure. the Fourth Estate. What are you going to be pursuing? Do you have like a mission or goal in mind or aspiration for this? You know. <laughs> If it turns into something great, uh, right now the goal is just honing the message. I'm trying to strip away the neoliberal lens from media analysis, right? Or from the way media analyzes things. And that's harder than it sounds because you start by rejecting the premises that they start with, right? You know, you can pull out the things they say and pick it apart. And it's hard not to kind of box yourself in with their own framing. And ultimately the goal is to provide analysis that really does strip that away and yeah that's that's what i'm trying to do so how can people get your podcast they can get it on <laughs> they can get it on itunes they can get it on TuneIn, they can get it on soundcloud and stitcher and what would they look for uh the fourth estate and my name probably would help, Eric with a K, Nieto, and like Nancy, I-E-T-O. Great. Yeah. I Good. wish we had more time because I would love to play that podcast. Oh, I appreciate that. Because but, your interview with Dan Bustillo was really interesting. Once I did the editing, I could really listen to hear it. it. I'm sure. So, um, any final words? Um, earlier I mentioned a... Um, a study about police violence. You can find that at granada.com, G-R-A-N-A-T-A. It's by Patrick Ball. I think it's worth reading. It's really interesting. Okay. Well, Eric Nieto, thank you so much for being on the show and congratulations on your graduation. And I look forward to hearing more of The Fourth Estate. Thank you so much, Tonio. I really appreciate it. This is the Magical Mystery Tour.